So last week was the church as a family, and the main passage we looked at was from first, not the main passage, but kind of a theme passage was 1 Corinthians 12, where all the members of the body, though many, are one body. Like our bodies, all of our members are connected, and we are one body. And he says, so it is with Christ. So our local group of Christians here that we call In Town Atlanta Church, we, we are all many members, various and diverse, and yet we are connected to be one in Christ. That's how God has constructed it. But what I want to talk about this week is how we function and what we do. One of the theme texts that I thought would be good was 1 Corinthians 14. I know this is kind of small up there. But in verse 26, he says, What then, brothers, when you come together, and then it kind of skips down, it says, Let all things be done for building up. And then he goes on to say in verse 40, All things should be done decently and in order. We're going to read more of that text in a little bit. But I, I really think that there's a few specifics that we just need to get in our minds when it comes to how we function as a church. I think the first is that there is an order and that there is a structure that is given by God. And God can give that because he's the one that put Christ as head of the church. So God can construct the the church how he wants. And Christ can lead and can be the authority over his church. In fact, if at any point we start saying we don't need the authority of God or we don't need to just look at scripture and see what what is Christ's desire, what do his apostles teach, then really we're not striving to be the people of God anymore. We're not striving to be a church, not, not, not a church that is connected to Christ. We're striving to be a body that is separate from Christ at that point. So, so there is an order and there is a structure, and God has the authority to designate that. Um, and just because he doesn't strike us down when we kind of go off path doesn't mean we're not off path, right? Um, I think another important thing is that Truly, God has given the church to function a certain way for the building up of the group, not for the building up of one, and not just for the building up of the group, but he has given that as a purpose. He says it right here in 1 Corinthians 14, all things are to be done for building up. And we'll look at that passage in a little bit, but what he's really saying there is that all these different gifts and all these different things that you have going on in your church, they get so out of order and so inappropriate when it's not for the good of building up the group, when it's done for one person to show off, or when it's done for the building up of just a couple, then it's a real problem. And that is not what the church is meant to be doing. All right, so first we're going to start in Acts chapter 2. If you want to turn in Acts 2, you can. The, the verses are going to be on the screen. When I started thinking about, well, how should we start as far as considering what the church does or just how the church is meant to function, Acts 2 seems to be a really good place to go to. Acts 2, starting in verse 41, says, Those who received his word were baptized, and there were 3,000 souls that were added that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right, so I've got about six things that I notice here that they did that I think that we can do and, and I think that we should be doing. So what, should, what, did the first, uh, what did the first Christians do? Well, they did these six things. 
They were devoted to teaching from the apostles. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread, and they were devoted to prayers. But then it says that they were together. They were together day by day. So physically, they attended temple together. They, they ate their food with glad and generous hearts. They got together in people's homes. But it seems like they're also together spiritually. Like we talked about last week, the, the unity and oneness that the church is supposed to have. We see that being experienced here as they share in all things. They are of one mind, but they're also of one heart, and so they're sharing with what they have. So they provide for one another. Being devoted to the teaching from the apostles was a pretty wonderful experience for those Christians because they could sit at the feet of the apostles. Now, we don't have apostles at this church. We don't have apostles today. Um, but we can sit at the feet of the apostles by trying to seek their teaching, right? And, and we should just thank God that we have his word, that we have his word that has been handed down over the ages where not only were people led by the Spirit to speak and to write and things like that, but it was then handed down over time so that we can benefit. And so, you know, sometimes people say that when you're looking in the New Testament, especially the letters, we're opening other people's mail. But, you know, it's kind of a wonderful thing that we have that, right? Like it was written to specific Christians of a specific day to help them, to guide them in a way that God had planned for a long time. If you remember, when Jesus was still alive, before he was killed, he told the apostles that the Holy Spirit would come to guide them and instruct them into all righteousness. Well, then why do the apostles then, why are they the ones that go and teach and preach? Because they know how to instruct other people into righteousness and, and so that they can have understanding. And we're benefiting from all of that. We're, we're able to understand what pleases God, and we're able to understand how we ought to live righteous and holy lives in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation thanks to the apostles' teaching. So we have that. We have that in a different way than they did, but we have that today. So then he says being devoted to fellowship. So fellowship, um, I, I've been in some Bible classes where someone goes on a rant about what fellowship is and what it isn't, and it can kind of sound confusing even during their rant. To me, at least, I'm like, I think I've lost the understanding of what fellowship is even in your, their comments. Um, and I think it's because our society uses fellowship in a way that maybe the Bible doesn't use. Um, as, it uses it more broadly than a way maybe scriptures do. But that happens with a lot of words and a lot of language. And so like we, we could fight against that or we could kind of just understand that's the context we're in. But when we see fellowship in scripture, I think what we need to understand is that fellowship is just about joining together for a common goal and a common purpose. There's a, there's a wonderful bond that we share with one another because of our relationship with God through Christ. That's what fellowship is. Now, when we, sh when we see they were devoted to the fellowship, I think that just means they were devoted to getting together and they were devoted to sharing in their faith. It wasn't just getting together to share meals. But I think that getting together to share meals was part of their joining with one another, part of their common bond. Or maybe it was an overflow of the fellowship that they had. So fellowship is not just getting together to share meals. That is a overflow from our fellowship with, our, with Christ. That's, that's how, how I think we're supposed to look at it. See, these Christians, they, they didn't view it as only coming together on the first day of the week to worship. They did so much more. And I think today, maybe, maybe we can swing one way or the other as far as do we overemphasize the first day of the week and so therefore we don't prioritize the day-by-day -day gatherings? Or 
to be minimized the first day of the week because we say it's not about just that. It's about getting together in homes. And I think what we see right here in Acts chapter 2, it seems like it's both. They, like they're, they're getting together in the temple. They're worshiping God. They're instructing and teaching each other. And they're getting together in homes to share meals day by day, it says. And it just seems like it's both, and it's not one versus the other at all. And also, their, their fellowship leads to them selling their possessions. Verse 45 says, They sold their possessions and property, and they distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had need. So there's over 3,000 people. Do you think that some of the people that sold their possessions knew the other individual that was in need, like, intimately? I don't, I don't see how they could have. How can you know all 3,000 people that are there? How can you know every person that is part of this group that is, that is getting the proceeds from what you have worked hard for? There's no way they could have known that. But they did it because they knew the fellowship was there. So we have, we have a group of Christians that worship here and gather together. We try and do these things where we are devoted to the apostles' teaching, where we gather together on the first day of the week. We gather together other times as well. We share meals together. We do all of that. But you know, sometimes we're a little, we, we can be stingy with people that are brothers and sisters because maybe we know them too well at times. Like these are people that didn't know some of the people they're helping out, and we just know each other too well sometimes. Or maybe that's what gets in the way at least, and it just shouldn't. Like if we know that that fellowship with God is there, then we should be willing to do exactly what they did. So then it says they were devoted to the breaking of the bread, and I think that when he says the breaking of the bread, I, I think he's probably talking about the communion around the table to remember the Lord's death. But we do see that another thing that they did is that in verse 46, they were breaking bread in their homes and received food with glad and generous hearts. So that they are breaking bread, just, I guess you might say, socially or just, you know, day in and day out. They're doing both. And we need to make sure that we're emphasizing both. The Lord's Supper is something that we emphasize here at this group. Uh, there was a time during COVID where that was all we did. We got together for the Lord's Supper and that was it. Because we realized that if there's one thing that we are going to um, sit out in the hot summer heat under Richard's carport to do, if we're going to get together for anything, let, let's, let's at least get together for that. And if we have rain that's coming and there's an hour window where we can actually worship outside because we didn't have a place to worship inside, well, let's, let's, let's at least remember the Lord's death. Because we see that's something that they did in the early church. They, we know they did that. Um, in fact, it's not just when the church is established. Even before that, the disciples gathered together seemingly to remember what Jesus had just done. After Jesus is crucified, after he's raised from the dead, um, the tomb is found empty. And then, you know, Jesus actually finds the disciples gathered together what seems to be on the first day of the week. And it seems like maybe that was something they were told to do. Maybe they were getting together every day, but Jesus appeared to them in that room on the first day of the week. And it seems like he did it twice. And I think that from that point on, this is just my opinion, I think from that point on, there was a pattern established where they were going to get together at least on that day. Now, we know they got together a lot more, right? But we even see throughout Acts, like Paul a couple of times emphasizes that he made sure and he changed his travel plans to make sure that he could be with the brethren on the first day of the week. That just seems to be a priority for these Christians. And I think that the communion, I think that remembering the Lord's death is, is a big part of that. When we talk about partaking of the Lord's Supper, we talk about sometimes communion. I, I think 
maybe something that we could emphasize is just a root word from, from that word communion, and that's union. When we are partaking of the bread and partaking of the cup, there's two unions that we should be thinking about. The primary one is our union with Christ. Because when we partake of the bread that represents his body, when we partake of the cup that represents his blood, we should be reminded and almost like confirming our union with Christ. That's what we are doing. But we also are being reminded of our union with one another, that through his death and through his bloodshed, that we are connected and we are in fellowship with one another. So then we see that they were devoted to prayers. We see later on in Acts, actually, you know, just another couple chapters in chapter 4, um, that Peter and John, they're arrested and then they're released. And when they are released and they go back, what are the brethren doing? Well, they're, they're gathering together to pray. We need to be a, a group of people that get together to pray for one another when there is difficulties. That we prioritize our prayer, not just individually where we have a prayer list sent out, which is great, but that we gather together sometimes specifically just to pray because of a great um, time of rejoicing sometimes, or a great time of sorrow. That's, that needs to be something that we do as well. All right, so the, we see these six things. I think there might be, you know, you could divide them up maybe differently, but I, I saw these six things. That's what they did. These need to be things that we do as well. Another question that I, that I thought of as, as I uh, was looking at this uh, or thinking about this lesson is, what do we need to do to grow into Christ? So Ephesians 4 is another text that we're going to look at. If you want to turn there, you can, but it's on the screen. might be a little small for some people. But Ephesians 4, we looked at this last week, and we looked at 1 through 7. But let's pick up in verse 7, and let's go down to verse 16. So beginning in Ephesians 4, verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, he who ascended on the high... He led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Um, that can be a really confusing um, text that I just read. That's why I didn't put it on the screen. It's because I just think it's kind of wordy and it's kind of difficult. Basically, I think what Paul is doing there is he's saying Christ ascended. Christ has left, and he, he has left uh left people with abilities and gifts that are able to continue on his purpose and his mission. So then we pick up in verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I think what Paul is talking about here is like the church is meant to grow up and to mature into the image of Christ. And because that's God's purpose and that's what God wants, he has given the church certain people, certain, certain responsibilities. He's, given, he's blessed the church so that we all might grow into Christ, into his image. Um, 
you, you kind of see that in 12 and 13 where he says that uh, the saints are equipped for ministry for building up the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith. And he says that we are uh, trying to attain mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're trying to grow into the fullness and stature of Christ. But then he says in verse 15 that we are speaking the truth in love. We grow up in every way into him who is head into Christ. So what should we do to grow into Christ? I think the rest of Ephesians kind of answers that. So I noticed five things as I went through the rest of Ephesians that I think Paul emphasizes that they're just details of this is how you grow into Christ. He, he, we know he's blessed the church uh, with this opportunity, and with this ability. And maybe one way of looking at it is he's blessed you as an individual Christian with the church so that you might grow up into Christ as well. The, the church itself is a blessing that we have that helps us to grow into Christ. But there's five things that, that we should be doing based on what Paul says later on in Ephesians. So, so the first one is in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. He says, This is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Christ. We need to learn Christ and we need to keep being taught. Like if we want to grow into Christ and into his image, then we need to continue to learn Christ. You go down to Ephesians 4, 28, and he says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. So he's, he's giving these Christians instructions to change their concept and view of work so that they might help needy people. And I'm saying needy brothers and sisters because Jason already covered all needy people around the world. And so like, I'm also saying needy Christians because I think when we look at Acts 2, that was the emphasis. They helped one another. You go down to Ephesians 5 and you look at verse 6 through 10. And he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Like, what we need to do if we're going to grow into Christ is we need to collectively discern what pleases God. And what he goes on to say in verse 11 is take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Like, we need to be striving to expose darkness from within our group. That will help us to grow into Christ. And the last one is down in Ephesians 5, and you look at verse 18. He says, Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another. And have you ever thought about how interesting it is that, like, the contrast of being drunk with wine is being filled with the Spirit? That, that's, a, that's an interesting thing that he sets up as, as opposing things. I would think, don't get drunk with wine, but instead, you know, drink another, <laughs> I don't know, have another alternative thing that you need to be filling yourself with. But, but he, he says you need to be filled with the Spirit. And he says you need to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Another way that we're going to grow into Christ we have clear and spirit-filled worship together. Um, so we know that we are supposed to grow into Christ. Well, how we do that, I think, I think Paul goes on to mention these five things. So these are things that we need to have here. These are things that we need to strive for. We need to continue to learn Christ. We need to make sure that we are 
having this fellowship and the overflow of that fellowship where we actually share with one another. We try to meet each other's needs. We need to discern what pleases God, which I'll talk about in a second, but I think the way we do that is probably through our teaching, but also through like our Bible studies that we have going on at various times. We need to strive to expose darkness from within us, which can be challenging, especially with a church with no elders. It can be hard to do, but we see that that is how we are going to grow into Christ is by exposing darkness. And we need to have clear and spirit-filled worship. Those, those are, these are the things we need to be about. So what I want to do is I want to take four things that I think that we have as a church that we do, um, but encourage us to, con- to consider them to make sure that we continue to have these things. So this is the function of our church here. The first is our worship is to be spirit-filled, proper, and orderly. So in John chapter 4, this is where Jesus is having a conversation with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And as shocking as that conversation is by itself, um, Jesus says something that is really shocking to her. He says in verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here. This is because she has a question of, where should I be worshiping, right? Like, your people say this place, my people say here, my people aren't accepted where you say we need to worship. So where are we supposed to be worshiping God? He said, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Worshiping in spirit and truth I think means that we worship with our with true heart, with our devotion, but also in a certain pattern, in a certain way that God has designed. So the fact that we are supposed to worship in spirit means it truly needs to be something where we are stirred up, right? It is meant to be heart-filled. It is meant to be pouring our hearts out to God. But it is also to be worshiping in truth, which means that there is a pattern. And when we see a pattern, when we see instruction, we need to follow that. What Jesus says is that God is looking for these people. God is looking for true worshipers. But we want to make sure that here at our church that we have that. That we first and foremost, we seek to be stirred up to uh, in love and good works through our worship. That we are trying to stir one another up so our, we have spirit-filled worship. But we need to make sure that it is in accordance with truth. We need to make sure that it's proper, that it's something that we see God has said it needs to be. So we gather to pray and sing, to have communion. We gather to read scriptures at times, maybe to even discuss scriptures. We do that with our Bible classes. Um, we do a lot of other things that we try to do together. Um, if, if you've worshipped here for uh, a time, and this isn't just, well, maybe even if this is your first time, I mean, you, you obviously know that we don't, use instruments with our worship. And there's some reasons for that, and we can't go into some of those reasons because I think it'd just take a lesson that's already long and make it even longer. I'll, I'll give you two big reasons for me. Um, I think it's because we see we, we see with confidence that singing is, a, is mentioned as a method of our praise that is pleasing to God. So that's what we do. We, like, we know that's good, so we do that. But the second big thing to me kind of comes from last week's sermon, where we talked about our love and our unity. Because we seek to carry on in love and unity, and so we're not going to do things that are going to offend or going to disrupt other people in their worship to God. So those two principles are pretty important for us as a group. That 
we see God says something, we want to do that because we know it's good. But also, I'm going to consider my brothers and sisters before myself. So those two principles are, are really important for us. We see this emphasized over, and over, emphasized over and over again, and I think Hebrews 13 is a very good passage just to remember. Hebrews 13, 14, and 15. Hebrew, let me say that again. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 14 and 15 says, Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. That's not just singing. That, that, that's just talking about our praise to God and our speech and everything. But the reason that we need to be energized in our worship and our singing together, I think is verse, 15, is verse 14. We have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. Like That needs to be one of the main reasons we are stirred up to praise God together. Because we are praising him and we are just looking for our city that is to come. We're trying to honor him the best we can in this life. But we're really just longing for the city that is to come. Another thing I think we see from here comes from, um, from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if you want to turn there, we already mentioned this a little bit ago, but we'll read all of 26 through 40 and then just make a couple of points here as far as our proper and orderly worship. So beginning of verse 26, Paul says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three in each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said. If revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. But God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So all things are done for building up, and they're meant to be decent and in order, he says. This isn't for showing out. We should show appreciation for everyone's abilities and what they do, whether that's up here or whether that's just you know of a good deed someone is trying to do, you know someone's picking someone up, whatever it might be, like, that, that should be appreciated. That should be something that is acknowledged. But this isn't a talent show where we're trying just to show up. Like worship isn't meant to be that, but just the church isn't meant to be that. So this isn't about one person or a few people getting some shine. This truly is about us trying to be built up as a group. And I think when we focus on that, some of the issues that we just read about, about like, but what, why am I not able to do this? Why, why, why am I being restricted? Well, that kind of goes away when we, when we make sure that all the people that are involved in our corporate worship, you might say, or even just involved in leadership type roles, when they're not trying to focus on themselves, it, it kind of helps that other people don't feel 
overlooked. And we need to be a church that doesn't overlook anyone. We need to be a group that makes sure that everyone understands how they can serve, how they can help, and how they are contributing to the building up of our body. Um, I don't think that our group believes that, that I am the main person that's contributing to the building of the body. And if any of you think that, then I really think you're wrong. <laughs> um, you don't know the ins and outs of our group if you think that. Um, but no one should have that attitude. We need to make sure we, we purge that out of, out of our hearts and that our church doesn't have that. Our aim should be the same aim that Jesus had, which what he said was that everything he did and everything he said was from the Father. And that guided him, and that led him, because it was just about pleasing his Father. That needs to be our mentality here at this church. So what we should expect from our church is clear, spirit-filled worship, where we sing to honor God, we lift one another up, we don't put other people down, but we truly see how can we build each other up. So this needs to be one of the things I think we, we strive for. I think we do this. I think we should continue to try and do this. The next thing is that our sharing is to be a true sacrifice for each other. So I'm not going to have time to turn to these scriptures, so I'm just going to go ahead and read them. 1 Corinthians 11, 33 and 34 says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give direction when I come. So Paul's correcting these Christians that have been abusing their time together when they are meant to just participate in a meal that honors Christ and remembers him. They've been abusing that, and so Paul says, you just need to eat at home, okay? But one of the things that I think is really difficult that he says is when you come together to eat, wait for one another. How many of you are find it easy to wait for one another when it comes to eating, when you're really hungry. <laughs> or when you just think, well, they're just slacking and they're running late. Like some of you are so good at being timely that when other people are late, you're just, I'm sure you're just burning up inside, right? Um, I think that that's just, an ex- that's just one way that our sharing with one another is meant to be a sacrifice. Like you, we should just be willing to wait for each other way for each other. We should be willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that we can have this fellowship and have this communion. Another way that we're supposed to have true sacrifice is financially. In Acts 4, it says the full number of those who believe were of one heart, one soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Children grab onto their toys and and say, no, that's mine, when another child wants to play with it. Adults grab onto their money and their security and their future plans and say, no, that's mine, when they feel like someone else is going to take that from them or threatens that. But in, in the church, we shouldn't have that. In the church, we are to say, nothing is just mine. How can I serve you? And that is a really challenging mentality and a really hard thing for us to put into practice. But it says that with great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Then it says, there was not a needy person among them. As many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was a sacrifice that they offered for the benefit of their brothers and sisters. And that's what we need to have here. I think we do that. I think we do a really good job of that. And we just need to continue to do that. We need to be patient with one another, wait for one another. We need to make sure that we are being patient as far as someone's understanding and their growth and their knowledge as well. But we also need to sacrifice of our, of our material things for the good of other people at this church. 
This is what true fellowship is. This is what it means to be in true communion. And it's really challenging. You see, the, the gospel challenges us not just to sacrifice our desires and to, and to live more holy and moral lives, but what the gospel also does is it challenges us sometimes to not be as individualistic as we might want to be, but to be part of the whole, to get kind of lost in the group, to get lost in the body, but to also trust that because we know we're members of one another, that it's not like we're being put down. It's not like we're truly being overlooked. We're just part of something that is wonderful and pleasing to God. So at this church, we shouldn't, we should never expect there to be a big business kind of mentality. We shouldn't expect um, there to be an overemphasis of, of finances and, and funds or anything like that. We don't want to be people that are like the money changers that Jesus drove out of the temple, right? We want to be a church that takes care of one another. So we do make sure that we have the ability to help one another because it's just a sharing. And it really is a sacrifice. I think the third thing that we do good here, but we need to make sure we continue to do, is that no matter our leadership structure, Christ is to be our leader. So in Ephesians 4, we've already emphasized this, but we are to be growing up into the fullness and stature of Christ, not the fullness and stature of Blake, of David, of Tim, Rob, of, of anyone else, not the fullness of stature of Rebecca, of Haley. We're not trying to grow into the stature of any one person here. We're trying to grow into the stature of Christ. He is our leader. We don't have elders at this church, but thank God he's blessed us with Jesus Christ, who is our chief shepherd, our the, the good shepherd that we can look to and follow. 1 Peter 5, 4 says that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He says that also to the elders. He says he said that he's one of the elders, but also he says when the chief shepherd, like Peter says that. So we're a body of Christ that is growing into our leader, Christ. So no one person here is the standard. But what do we do with the fact that we don't have elders? Well, we know that church is operated without elders because we see Paul and Barnabas and others go around and actually help appoint elders. And we see Paul write to Timothy and Titus qualifications for elders so that they would be helpful in the appointing and the designation of elders at the churches where they were. So they operated prior to having those qualifications. So we know that. But we kind of do the best we can. I think there are some things that we try and do here that we need to continue to do. We need to try to practice accountability to one another in spite of not having shepherds. Um, which means sometimes it might be uncomfortable because you're going to think, well, who are you to check in on me about this? I'm your brother, or I'm your sister, so that, that's who I am, right? It doesn't take elders to do that. We need to practice God the counsel, even though we acknowledge that no one here is given that charge to actually instruct and correct the way we see shepherds do. But we need to do that. It's actually kind of cool how in the New Testament, there's a couple times where we see Peter and Paul emphasize that, like, there's responsibilities of older women and older men, and there's responsibilities of younger men and younger women. And it seems like when, when we all see our responsibility, we're able to kind of come together even in spite of not having elders and be this wonderful body of Christ that grows into our head. But we do need shepherds here. 
That's something that we should be preparing for. We need to be a group that is desiring to be led and not a group that will fight leadership. Um, because if we're truly a body of Christ trying to grow into Christ, grow into him, we already have signed up to be led. We've already signed up to be followers. So why is it that difficult for some churches to just follow men? Well, I think it's probably because we have pride, we have arrogance, we have, we're just overly judgmental at times, and we don't need to be a group that has that. We don't need to, to perpetuate that. All right, the, the last point that I'll make, and then we'll wrap up, is that we should be a gospel-centered church, a gospel-centered church in teaching and lifestyle. Romans 12, 10 through 13, I think, show the lifestyle. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. If you want to know if our group is gospel-centered in our lifestyle, I think that those verses give us a really good litmus test. Are we loving one another with brotherly affection? Are we striving to outdo one another and showing honor? That only happens because we are gospel-centered, because we're changed by the gospel. He says, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. He says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. How are we going to go through hard times as a group? Well, if we're centered on the gospel then we are patient in tribulation. And then he says to contribute to the needs of the saints and to seek to show hospitality. Like it's harder the, the bigger our group gets, right? It, it's harder to be hospitable. It just takes more planning, more effort, more diligence. But if we're going to be gospel-centered in our lifestyle, then that's what it's going to take. And I think we do a really good job of that. And I want us to continue to do that. I, I know that you all do too. The amount of times people will come and they'll say, I'm looking for community. By the way, earlier I mentioned that our communion with the Lord's Supper shows two different unions that's going on, how we are in constant communion. People are seeking community. That's what they are wanting. That's what we all want. But we need to make sure we are providing that by loving one another, showing honor to one another, by bearing with one another, and by being hospitable, by contributing to the needs of each other. But we also need to be gospel-centered in our teaching. Last week, Philippians 1.27 was the last verse that we looked at, and this week it's going to be 27 and 28. Paul says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. That was, our, that was how we left it last week, was like standing side by side. We need to be a family. But he specifically says that we need to be side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. We need to be people, we need to be a church that emphasizes the gospel, that we promote it, that we talk about it that we make sure that we have been changed and are continuing to be changed, and that we also tell other people about that. But if we're going to stand side by side and like lock arms and be a family, we need to be a family, um, needs to be like our, our motto or the thing that really just grounds us is the gospel. It's not tradition. It's not just feeling good and, and having a good time going through life together, although that's wonderful. I, I love that. They really, really need to be about the gospel. 
We need to be people that are changed, continuing to be changed, challenge each other to be changed by the gospel, and telling other people in the world that that's what they need. The gospel is what connects us and pushes us forward. So we have sermons. We have Bible classes. There's men's and women's Bible studies. There's various other Bible studies that we have going on, all for this purpose, to be gospel-centered, to make sure that we're promoting the gospel, to make sure that we're continuing to be changed, that we're exposing darkness from within us, and that we're discerning what's good and pleasing to God. So that's what we try to do, and I hope that we continue to try to do that. Um, This kind of sermon is one of the more uncomfortable types for me, just because I just feel like it's all over the place, like it's hitting so many things, right? Um, I wanted to just have kind of more of a high-level view of what are we supposed to be about as a church. And I, I think these four things kind of sum it up from what I can see. I hope these things are helpful. I hope that maybe these give you some things that you realize, well, I, I'm not contributing. I'm not part of this the way I need to be. Well, that's good if you're challenged in that way. Or if there's some things that we looked at and you think, I don't know if this group is doing that the way that it, that it can be. Well, then let, let us know, because we, we need to do these things. This is what God has given us, so that we might grow into the image of Jesus. Um, I'm going to say a prayer real quick for our group, and then Scott's going to have one song before we wrap up this portion of our worship. God, our Father, we thank you so much for giving us Jesus, who is our head, who is our leader, our ruler, and our king. But we thank you for the church. Lord, we're, we're grateful that we can just have association and fellowship with other believers so we might be be a pleasing aroma to you. We might grow into the image of Jesus, not be tossed around by all the different teachings and all the different ideas that we have around us, but that we would steady ourselves on the gospel and on your truth. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to share with one another. And God, we we ask that you will allow us and, and to see ways where we can be better, where we can share better and, and we can sacrifice more. God, if, if there are ever things that we are doing that we should not be doing, we pray that you will help us to see that. And if there are ways where we are not pleasing you, that we need to start doing other things, we pray that you will help us to see that as well. God, we, we can't wait to be part of the great assembly one day in heaven where all people of all time that have been faithful to you will be gathered together. And God, we are just trying our best to have that on, on this earth, waiting for Christ, who is our ruler and our king, to return. So he takes us home. We thank you for all you've done. We continue to be with this church as we strive to grow and build one another up. God, it's such a wonderful thing to be part of your people. And we just pray that we please you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.